0: Before starting this episode, I want to thank you, each one of you that cares so deeply about your patients and have dedicated your career to bringing evidence-based medicine to the bedside to give your patients the best chance to survive and thrive. We have IC Revolutionists meeting every month now, and it has been amazing to hear the various levels and avenues of progress from teams. If you want in on these meetings, email me, message me, let me know, I'll invite you. It fills me with awe and inspiration to see how visionary pioneers can truly make big impacts. I want each of you to know that this is a process. On this podcast, we talk about an awake and walking ICU that has practiced this way for almost 30 years, but it didn't start out this exemplary. Their process is smooth because of working through the kinks and obstacles over long periods of time. So be patient. Yet, it is also important and so fun to hear from teams that are further down the road and closer to becoming awake and walking ICUs. I am excited to have a representative share with us her team's successes and how they are well on the way to saving millions of lives and millions of dollars. Nancy, welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself to us? Yes,
1: yeah, sure. My name is Nancy McGann, and I'm a physical therapist by background. I am the manager of caregiver safety for the for Mountain Health and in the Peaks region, so the Colorado Montana region of the organization. Um, I have been in healthcare for thirty three years, worked in all areas: physical therapy, inpatient, outpatient, orthopedics, rehab, home health. um, You know, kind of the whole gamut. My specialty, though, was outpatient manual therapy, and training to get people back to manual jobs. And so that was what led me into caregiver safety and injury prevention. Um, and for the last seven years, I worked in the quality and safety department um, in my organization. So that has um, led me to my you know combination of what I did with ergonomics, as a physical therapist, that we want to keep everybody safe, not harm our patients, and promote mobility. So that's my biggest
0: passion. And I often am reached out to by PTs, nurses, nurse managers, directors within the ICU directly. So you have a very unique position and a a seat on this whole system as far as you being able to bring the change that has happened at St. Joe's. And maybe you came in from an angle of wanting to keep the clinicians safer. And then one thing led to another and it turned into this beautiful phenomenon of St. Joe's becoming an awakened walking I- ICU. Tell us how that started for you.
1: Yeah. So in our organization, we have an internal safety grant um, and it's, it's you know, for patient or caregiver safety. And in our organization, we call everyone caregivers. So for, our, you know, people that clean our hospitals and environmental services to our nurses, everyone is, is a caregiver. So. So with that um, grant, so we've had three mobility-related grants. And so in 2020, we have an ambulation grant, and that is for every patient in our hospitals, in our acute care hospital. And then in 2021, we had a pre-ambulation grant. So those patients that aren't capable of walking, how do we maximize their mobility in our care? And so that kind of final frontier in the most complex area to really improve mobility is the ICU setting. It's also the area that has the most evidence to show that it absolutely improves outcomes. And it also provides financial stewardship to your institutions. Um, It also enhances the the joy of the work of our caregivers. So it it is something that has been around in evidence-based for so many years, yet is so uncommon in practice. But we kind of knew that that was the most complex. So that's what we decided to wait till... Um, you know, for that big focus and push for that that three
0: year, um, that third year of our mobility work, and because you are part of safe patient handling, you were in close contact with Margaret Arnold, who helps mm-hmm. acute care, LTAC, SNFs, just throughout the continuum of care, increase their mobility, and um, very serendipitously, Margaret and I became in contact. She um, was cued into the podcast from. Chris Perme. Mm -hmm. So she started listening to the podcast. That's when we, she and I started talking. So she had already started working with your team and she brought me in to come on site to St. Joe's. And that's when we took this momentum that you already had as far as increasing mobility in your ICU. And I came in and said, okay, now let's take it to become an awake and walking ICU. And I didn't know how you guys were going to receive that. How was that initially perceived?
1: Well, see, they were very ready for that because we had already done some initial training. So Margaret and I have known each other for fifteen years. We've been involved now in safe patient handling and mobility. We're both on the Association of Safe Beach and Handling Professionals board, um, and I knew the consulting work she did with critical care. Um, and and um, I saw it. we did we hired her firm to help support us. In this process, so that we didn't have to reinvent wheels that have already been invented, um, and so with that, there's been when we write the grant project, we we look at all of our eight hospitals in the Peaks region, and we were looking who's the most ready for this, and so so they were very very ready initially when we when we wrote the grant. Um, there was a few hospitals in our system that had walked into patients in the past. That was one of my key things. Like. That they, you know, that's, that's, you know, a lot of people, if you say, do I, do you have ICU early liberation, early mobility, those, you know, the terms that float around, they say yes. But then when you dive in, they really don't understand what that means, which is why I really love the term awake and walking ICU, because they kind of need to hear that. It's a plain language term, which is just much more impactful. Um, and so, you know, even now, if it's rehab driven, it's not really early mobility. It, it is you know if they're not walking any ventilated patients, it's not early mobility. It's not it's not truly that. And so oh say that louder ready. for those in the back. If they're <laughs> not walking patients <laughs> with ventilators, yeah, it's not it's not true ICU liberation mobility awaken one ICU. It's, it, and so people have the best of intent, and but there's still a knowledge gap. And even even with all the evidence from the front line and the frontline leadership, there's still a little bit of, of a knowledge gap there because there any mobility is mobility, right? But if you really are doing what's right by your patients to your staff or the financial implications of your institution, um, they need, you need to be walking most of your number of patients. Now, there might be some who we you know that can't, but the majority of them can be, should be. Um, and, you know, the, so, they, so we had two sites very ready. We ended up going with St. Joe's um, because <clears throat> of some more leadership turnover at one site, you know, post-pandemic when we started this. Of course, ICE new turnover was massive. By the time we actually started the Grand St. Joe's, that turnover happened there. So we had all new leaders um, in there, but we had a very passionate CNO, um, who's now our region CNO. And then we had um, we had enough to keep going with the project, but that was a barrier initially because we had to kind of re educate that. But we had done that priority to you coming and your inspirational podcasts, honestly, were a big part of that and, and having people listen. So what really goes on when someone's sedated and understand that is enormous. Just last week, I was presenting to a leadership team um, on the project that we did at St. Joe's. And one of the chief nursing officers for ambulatory care, so of course critical care is not from that ground. She was dumbfounded by what we were talking about with patients feeling like they're being raped when they're being categorized, patients feeling like they're being shot when their temperature is being good. She she was like, wow! I I just never knew that. So so sometimes that you know that plain language again, people understanding also people being able to make end of life decisions if they're not going to leave your ICU and not having family have this burden for the rest of their life. Did I make the right decision for my mom, my dad, you know, a loved one? So um, so I think they they were they were very ready. And I think when people learn this, they all want to do it. It's just super hard to achieve because of the complex nature and the interdisciplinary need. Um, and so, so I think it's easy to get across the people, the whys, but the hows are very difficult. Absolutely. And I love that you're coming from all these
0: angles. You are working at all the levels of decision making, the C-suite, the administrators, the nursing leaders, everyone. Um, and there was already momentum going because you're right. Everyone knows that early mobility by now should be a thing, but the definition of it, the approach to it, the end goal is so variable between disciplines, systems, hospitals. It's just all over the place. So you came in and you said, we are going to take this grant money and move this forward. And you brought in the why you helped them understand. um, They already were bought into early mobility, but to say, here's why we need to go all the way here's the harm that we're preventing not just we're just trying to save money Mm -hmm. which is true but you then hit the heart of it and inspired everyone to really act and go all the way with it so once everyone had the why on board now it was how are we gonna do this because it's such a drastic change um and i i was on site with margaret a few um months ago and We were talking to this team and they didn't have very much preparation before we went there. The medical director even said, "Um, you're here with earlymobility.com, but why are you talking about sedation? (laughs) So when I came in, it was bringing in this piece of, yes, we're here for mobility, but let's look at the big picture. We have to address sedation. We've seen the team study that if we don't talk about sedation and bring in that piece of it and understand, like you said, what patients are experiencing how do we approach early mobility? So it was so exciting for me to be a part of that, to jump in and bring in this element. Um, But what were your first steps to really setting up this movement?
1: So, So the first really is kind of that awareness, right? It's understanding the why and doing enough training and determining leaders from each discipline. So we have PT, OT, speech, pharmacy, Nursing, the physician leaders, um, you know, respiratory therapy, and we had process improvement as well on board. So, so we really needed to get that that entire team together to make this happen. You can't have it driven because there's a therapist that's very passionate about it. They can only go so far with that. They can help, but they can't really make it happen if you don't have the providers on board. Because right, if a patient's overleaves the data, no one's mobilizing them. It's not possible. Um, and so. So there's so many pieces and and there's some, you know, early struggles in the process. You know, when do you do awakening trials? When do you do breathing trials? How do you set people up for success? So you're asking for a lot of change. And again, we're asking for that change in in a, in a group of health or from a group of healthcare professionals that truly took the burden of the pandemic. Right. And so, and so there was some hesitation, but it's like, no, is this the right thing to do? I did ask that. And they're like, no, we need to move forward with this. And, and what's very interesting to me in hindsight, and this is not something I anticipated, was that, that mass turnover we saw in critical care nationally, and both leadership and frontline. Um, you know, that this work, although burdensome initially, right, and saying, oh, it's one more thing being thrown at us, brought back so much better teamwork to their group and joy in their work. And that was when we did the first GAP assessment at the hospital in February of 22, right, 22. What year is it? Yes, 22. Um, They, you know, pretty much everybody on that unit, days, nights, nurses, everybody we talked to said, our patients are too sick to be mobilized. Um, There was almost no one that didn't, didn't mention that. Now, they had some patients they thought could, but for the most part, most were too sick. In in October 31st of 22, when you were there and we did the second gap assessment, nobody said that. Literally nobody. And they were all talking about some hurdles of teamwork they needed to overcome early on, and they did. So, and how much better everything is because of this one program because it built a better team. And they were so excited that they had to learn to talk and communicate with vented patients that they were getting feedback they had never gotten in their 10, 20 years of critical care nursing. Um, and you could just see the joy that in this group of individuals that truly had post-traumatic stress. from them. So that was not a part of why I wrote the grant and any of the outcomes, but it was very apparent and it's still very apparent when you start having them tell their stories, how much joy that brings back to them, which is to me, helping to sustain
0: our workforce. And it's, it's a big big right we And even just improved morale amongst the clinicians mm-hmm. has to improve care and outcomes. Um, I mean, we know throughout this podcast, so many ways in which avoiding sedation and mobility, logically improve outcomes, decrease infection rates, things like that. Mm-hmm. But then down to those little details, I just know myself when my heart is there, when I'm present, when I'm looking forward to that shift, I approach everything differently. So, if there was a way to capture the impact of staff morale mm-hmm. um, on their care, that'd be a really interesting study, but anecdotally, I believe I've personally experienced it.
1: Yes.
0: And it was really exciting to see that first visit on site, I could feel the defeat, the demoralization. And they were honest that many, especially respiratory therapists, that we we cannot do more. We are maxed out and I just hung on to this personal experience but also what we see in the research as far as this will make this an easier and more efficient process of care and I just wanted them to experience what it was like to connect with patients and I just wanted to revive their spirits because it was very very evident that they were willing they were interested but they just couldn't quite see what it was going to be like and weren't sure that it was going to work then the second visit we went at five in the morning to help with breathe awakening trials, which made me yeah. nervous thinking, okay, if they're still doing awakening trials right. standardized, that means that they haven't really moved with the sedation piece of this. But that was the exact opposite. We walked in there and almost every vintage patient was awake. The very few that were not um, had valid indications for sedation. And I saw in rounds that they were discussing how they were going to navigate that, when, why the patient sedated, when they're going to take sedation off. It was just music to my ears. but. On top of patients being communicative, writing on their clipboards, I saw the excitement in the clinician's eyes. I saw the enthusiasm. They wanted to tell us their exciting stories, how they showered a patient. And we'll have interviews with a lot of those clinicians um, in upcoming episodes. But that was an exciting byproduct of what we were working towards here. And what did you see in the data? I guess, what was your role in capturing the impact of these changes?
1: Yeah, so one one thing that we strongly believe in in our organization is that we have to have very good measures to drive process improvement. Especially when I'm sitting here in a region office, right? Like I'm not at the hospital. I, I obviously I go to the hospitals, but my that's not my role anymore. I don't work in direct patient care or leadership of direct clinicians. So what we need to do is have balancing measures of success that are accurate, that our staff believe in, that they know is it, coming automated from, the from we use EPIC, but from any electronic code record, so that they can have confidence in the measure and, and try to achieve it. And because if you don't know how you're doing, you can say, yeah, I have this. Well, how do you know you have this? What are the measures? So we have a few different dashboards, and we're still evolving with them. They take a long time to really evolve and become um, meaningful. Um, and we are looking at multiple measures. So we look at, um, are they RAT minus one plus to plus one? Uh, or they can ICU negative or positive, the number of event dates, Um, What is there? We use the bedside mobility assessment tool. What was there being at upon entry to the ICU and discharge and to the hospital discharge? Um, we are looking at, what else do we have? We have length of stay in the ICU and length of stay for the whole hospital. Um, we are looking at pressure injuries. We're looking at falls to see, are we seeing falls because we're really the floor more, and we're not. Um, and so, so we have a dashboard, what we still need to do to make it more meaningful, we have it for all eight of our hospitals, is we need to <clears throat> remove those short lengths of stay because we have there, it's watering our data. That's not really the patient population that we're focusing on with ICU liberation or disability, right? We're, we're focusing on those patients that are not, that had, had a coronary artery bypass tract and were in the ICU for 10 hours and, you know, moved on because that we're not impacting any in kind of program. So we need to eliminate those short lengths of stay to really see um, our group. And we'll, we'll be doing some analysis on that. So our analysts are working on that right now. But what we can do is sort and see how we're trending over time. And we also are looking at our CMI, case that's adjusted uh, length of stay. And we are seeing, once we the St. Joe's team felt like they were, you know, they're still not 100% there. They're not fully awake and walking, I see, but they're close, very close they really felt like September is when they really started seeing a major change in, in their delivery of care in their ICU. And we have seen um, financial already uh, benefits of, of CMI adjusted costs uh, that, that have been, been, I mean, it's very, only a couple months. We have to look in the lab. As Kaylee knows, I'm, I'm with data. I'm very hesitant to say anything until I know I'm very confident that it's reliable and valid and, Again, it takes a while to evolve, and our ambulation dashboards that we use that is very, very valid and reliable data, and um, we're definitely seeing improvements, more patients ambulating um, in our ICUs. So, so the bigger picture with data is it, it is you only measure data that's going to drive the change, and you can't just focus on one data point. So, what we did years ago was focused on patient falls. And so we stopped moving our patients because if they never left their bed, they weren't going to fall. What that really does is physiologically increase their risk of falls and also makes them deteriorate in every other way. And so we, we, you know, we needed to have balancing measures. So in our organization, our safe mobility, we always have a mobility measure. And now it's what we call therapeutic manipulation. We also have a fall measure because we don't want to see increased falls while we're increasing mobility. And then we also have a patient handling injury measure, because we also don't want our caregivers injuring themselves, mobilizing our patients. And and so when you have all three, you're making sure you're not doing harm and just looking at falls. So with the ICU, you don't want to be so aggressive about reducing length of stay that you're not having as good an outcome in, in some of the patient safety measures and in readmission measures and things like that. So that's where the dashboard analysis, you, you can't just say, oh, we're going to measure these three data points. We're going to do a cut some chart audits, and then we're going to make a big change. It doesn't work that way. And, and so you have to have big data come out to really see what's going on. You can't just go around and do a sampling um, and have it be truly impactful. There's times to do that, like to kick off the grant. That's what we did. But if you're going to sustain a program, then it really has to be extracted from the health record and then be meaningful. And so we've been on this journey for the ICU dashboard for Eight months now, or nine months, um, and I think we're gonna need that another three months before we really have it set and running, where people can go in and track the changes and share with their staff to drive the change.
0: And know that that data is reliable. So tell me more about that. What were some of the barriers initially to ensuring that what you were collecting was accurate and and actually actually meaningful? Mm-hmm.
1: So, a good example was vent days. So, you have to extract the vent days from a certain line in our in the health record. And then you have to have a denominator for that, right? And so, the denominator can't be every patient in the ICU because not all of them are on vents. You also maybe don't want to include those vented patients with short lengths of stay, like we talked about earlier. Because, again, you want it to be indicative of the work you're doing and the patient population you're impacting. You also, if you have a patient that came in on a vent from an LTAC, you don't want their vent days in there because, again, that's not who you're impacting. So as you get the data and go back into the and validate that the data is being, being pulled properly, then you have to make sure you're really measuring what you want to measure. And there were some things, like we wanted to do sedative hours, that we just couldn't do accurately because the way it's documented and pulled, it doesn't work.
0: If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. And what about delirium rates? How did you know, or how did you get those to be accurate and reliable?
1: Right. So I told all of our other hospitals is, is that one thing that Margaret Arnold noted early on was there was re-education needed on RAS and CAM scoring? So if we looked at um, at you know the, the data coming in, if it's not reliable even going into the health record as much, and this is pretty common, um, then you you need to do the training on that first. You got to see where the gaps are, and then start measuring. Um, you know another another example with. with uh, with the data over time is last January of, of 22, we still had a fair amount of COVID in our, in our healthcare systems, right? And so some of our data looked like a great trend line, but that was because we didn't have any more. That's because we got a lot less COVID patients. It wasn't because of the work we did. So we had some hospitals looking at our dashboard and saying, Hey, we're doing great. And I'm like, no, you're, you're not really. Because we, again, we, we need to have it. You need to annotate your dashboards and say, this is when we, have process changed? This was an anomaly because we had an inflexibility of patients. This was and an consider the context. Because, yes, you have to make context to your data or you might mislead people in what they're doing. And even COVID aside, even
0: time of the year. Oh, yeah. You're going to have more respiratory, more ARDS during yep. the respiratory season, during the winter versus the summer. Yes. So we have to take everything with a grain of salt and look at the context in which that data was extracted. And was it your team initially when you started being more aware and more diligent with charting camp scores, Mm -hmm. it looked like the delirium rates went up, correct?
1: Sort of in blips. Um, Yeah. And and some of that was, was probably better analysis. Uh, Some of that was doing it more. There was a lot of unable to assess because Uh of sedation. So, so it was a little bit of both of, of those things. And again, that's that sometimes seeing a, a negative thing. as a positive thing because your awareness brings on usually increased... If we we do a campaign for injury reduction, very often we see more injuries initially because people are... It's awareness. It's not that something's changed. It's the same kind of thing with that. Yes. And I was in a
0: meeting with a team um, talking about this discrepancy in RAS scores. I think everyone listening to this podcast can probably nod their heads and say, I've seen that happen where it's charted at a negative two, but they're really more of a negative four, negative five. right?" So I had a team pull up their um, chart. They just randomly went into a patient's chart and they found a charted RAS, I think of negative one, negative two, but the cam was unable to ex- assess. So I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't see, I didn't see the patient. But we can safely suspect that maybe that wasn't an accurate RAS. And then we don't know what their CAMIT score is. We don't know if they have delirium. Um, So you have to work out those kinks first before you can get a true baseline of where you're at. Mm -hmm. But looking for that can reveal the gaps in which we need to assess. So even though just because you have more documented delirium scores, does not mean that the rates are going up. It just means that we're now actually assessing for it.
1: Right. And that's where the process improvement still is happening. So even though the data isn't fully reliable, it's still showing you where you need to make changes to improve your care with delivery your care delivery. So, and that's the whole thing with continuous process improvement. It, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect at first and your data doesn't have to be perfect, but it needs to drive the right change.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, we could have waited another five months to do this episode and be able to have a grand finale ta-da, of the final changes and outcomes per your data, but you're still in that process. And the reason I wanted you to come on right now is that it's important to show the process of getting there. I think people get overwhelmed and these expectations of having it flipped around within a month. Um, and also we Part of the journey is a big part of this. It's not just the final product. And I don't think even in, when you have your data, it's not going to be the final product yet. And I even see in the awake and walking ICU that they're always trying to improve, always trying to do better. Um, and that should be our our continual goal. We need to celebrate our victories. And you already have victories to celebrate. You're talking about staff morale. You're talking about a notable decrease in time in the ICU. Time on the ventilator, much more ambulation for patients on ventilators, and I'm assuming throughout the entire population, even those that are not on ventilators. Do you see a change in the way that non-vented patients are cared for?
1: Yes, and and so and they're much more awake too. And the other interesting thing is, like with Ramsay, um, the the, the Saint Joseph ICU has that people, um, and so when they when they are considering etmo and they're considering anything else, they talk about how they're going to integrate that and, and not have it avoid mobility. And some of the early ones, we had a, a patient who had mobility issues prior to admission to the ICU. So someone who needed assistance with ambulation prior to coming into the care unit and air ARDS. And this this nurse actually on her own, uh, who he was on ECMO, um, put him in a walking sling and got him to take a few steps to the chair and sit in the chair because, um, you know, he was someone that needed that assistance, but she was empowered. And that was a big win that she had been, obviously, she did it with PT and OT and respiratory first, but she felt like now those two steps she could easily do with this, with the sling. she didn't need to go get other people. So, um, so that full integration, and that's where that same patient healing pieces come in, is when you have patients who are, um, do have genuine mobility struggles that are in addition to not your patients like came in walking, right? Those, you can usually, if you take them right off the sedation, to keep moving, um, you can get them going again. But for the, so that, that other population, um, you know, using technology to get them to maximize their true mobility is, is the other goal that came in. And that's where kind of Margaret and I from that same patient handling background came into this. But the facilitation and mobility throughout the continuum care with that equipment is huge for that lower level patient, right? That person who isn't super able to ambulate safely. Um what we have seen kind of throughout our our whole system with doing the mobility measures over the last three, well, almost four years now, is that it's just it's a common thought in people's minds. And our nurses especially understand now that. If we mobilize patients again, ICU and out of ICU, early and often, it actually reduces our nurse work. They don't get the pressure injury. They don't have muscle wasting, and then need physical therapy because you know, they, you could, you know they, they very often we would get a referral because if we didn't let a patient move and we caused them that immobility and that harm, now they needed rehab when they didn't initially when they were in the hospital. And so with the ICU program, it's even more profound because that muscle wasting with all the other processes of why someone's in the ICU could be more pronounced and their reserves, especially in our older adults, are not, you know, not, are not there. And so if we take away 10% of their muscle mass, We didn't let them move it over a few day period of time. You've, you've really disabled that person and they may now be going to skilled nursing instead of home. You know, so there's, there's this whole component of getting the station off, keeping them mobile, that improves our caregiver's safety because now they're not going to get hurt moving and handling those patients. Um, and then for the ones who are immobile, use the technology, still take them off the patient and get them moving. And you know what? Maybe you'll actually leave, they will leave at a higher level of care and they came in, higher level of mobility, higher level of function. Yes, I've
0: seen it. I've seen yeah. it. People come in that aren't unable to walk and then they walk out the doors. It's yeah. amazing. And That's not always the case, but... Yeah. There's no way that would happen unless we had that kind of culture and process of care. And it sets a precedence to show, hey, we've walked patients on ECMO. We've walked walked patients on ventilators with higher settings. So why not the rest of the hospital? Mm -hmm. And that nurse getting the patient up on ECMO by herself, Mm -hmm. having that level of confidence and comfort says so much about where your team has gone. But even to the critical thinking, I think the standard process of Thought is that patient is weak at baseline. They're on ECMO. It's unsafe. It's too much of a risk and hazard to mobilize them. But your nurse understood something different. She saw them at a higher risk of poor outcomes because of their baseline mobility, because they were more frail. She understood that she could save their lives and preserve their livelihood and their quality of life in that moment because they were like likely to rehabilitate later if she didn't do it in that moment. And that is extremely profound and mature. That is a mature clinician. To ensure that she does it safely, has the right tools, utilizes those yep. things. When it comes to equipment, equipment can be great. Sometimes we think we think that everyone has to utilize equipment, but I think that comes from having sedated patients yes, and then trying to get them up. And then that's when you do need a lift for every patient in every room and every situation. But, and because it's been the culture, a lot of teams actually do have tons of equipment mm-hmm. and it sits in a closet and it collects dust <laughs>
1: because that culture isn't there. Right. But I'm well, finding and that- and the equipment, if it's in a closet, isn't going to be used. It needs to be above the head, especially in the ICU setting. So right. it needs to be easily acceptable. The slings need to be there. So some of that's just a poorly set up program. Um, and, and
0: the, the nurses and need the to case. know how to use it. Sometimes yeah. the physical therapists are yeah. like, yeah, we have that- we can use it, but the right. nurses have no idea where it is, what it does. They're not comfortable with it. And right. you don't want to be the one fumbling around with a patient.
1: Yeah. Um, so you can't use it, it if you don't know how to use it. So yes. And, absolutely very absolutely. Important and there's competency. no reason to learn how
0: to use it if you don't have any ambitions of getting your patients right. up or right. even touching the ones that are the most tenuous yes. or the most and frail that need equipment.
1: That nurse in that situation, of course, she wouldn't have them more than a couple steps to share by herself. Right. But she, but she also didn't have to go get another staff member and have them leave their patient to be a machine to help remove. She actually used the machine instead of a critical thinking nurse. And then, yep. and, and, you know, when you interrupt someone to help you move a patient, and they're in critical care especially, and they're leaving their, their patients to do that, there's potential harm that can come from that. So if you don't need to do that, that it, it really improves quality of care in a, in a more global way. Um, you know, a lot of patient safety errors occur after interruption. Someone's going to deliver a med, they get interrupted, they forget their train of thought, and they you know, they're human beings and they can hurt. So the more we can reduce in the interruptions, the more you can reduce the number of staff that need to do things, the better, as long as you're keeping the safety in mind. Very few ICU patients are uh, that are on events are mobilizing, just one person, obviously, they're on ECMO. But right. then it's just a couple steps to the chair, and she had that extra thing, and she the patient has been already walking and doing all that other stuff with the bigger team. So and nurses, what I'm
0: finding when you get them hands-on practicing these skills or doing them, Mm -hmm. they realize, oh, I know how to get a patient to a chair. I know how to pivot. This is so much like any other patient. They just have some extra cords, some extra lines, machines connected that you need to be aware of, be able to critically think and assess for stability during those um, interventions. But when it comes down to their instinct and their skill set, they have a lot more than they realize. And once they do it, they realize, it's not so scary. And with the walking sling, that patient took their own steps. Yes, it's it's a sling, they had to put it on, but they didn't just hoist them to the chair. They didn't just, which I almost think is more dangerous when you have to use a whole lift with ECMO. That's so much more, um, the less control of where the lines are. You're blocking, visually blocking, physically blocking those lines. Not that lifts to a chair are Band, Mm -hmm. but to use that lift, that technology to allow a patient to bear their own weight, stand up, take their own steps, not just dangle in Mm -hmm. the air or just have a a piece of equipment do the work for the patient. That was the objective, and the nurse understood that. And I think that's important for nurses to know because that that technology can also be abused, right? We can think, I got my patients to the chair with a lift, but there we go mobility, check, they're in a chair, but they're Mm -hmm. mostly reclined in a recliner.
1: Right. So in our organization, our nurses for seven years have been doing a nursing driven mobility assessment called the VMAT. So we've empowered them to learn some very basic rehab kind of stuff to know what their patients are safely capable of doing. And then you only use the equipment based on that level in the way it's meant to be used. So you're actually using it to facilitate mobility, not to limit mobility. Now, for a patient that truly is, you know, has is unable to get themselves to the edge of the bed at all, then it's great to use a lift, and now they're in the chair three times a day. Or a patient that's fatigued after rehab and use the lift to get them back because they're tense and can't, they can't walk anymore back. You know So there's, it, it, you have to use all technology, all tools in healthcare at the right time. WITS is another example. They can be a wonderful tool. They can also limit mobility and cause and cut because our, our patients learn to go to the bathroom without, you know, so if so yeah. there's, so that, you know, again, yet it's a great tool in certain circumstances. So just like that, the lists need to be used at the right time in the right place, the critical thinking. But we do need to train our nurses on that critical thinking because they mobilize patients and see patients more than rehab. And and rehab in most acute care hospitals only see 50 to 60% of the patients. And, and, and so that other 40%, still need to move, or we're going to deteriorate them while they're in their care. And again, this has been beyond ICU. This is the entire hospital. And 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 we don't want them to be admitted to the ICU because we immobilized them, and we don't want them to have to go to skilled nursing or stay in our hospital longer because we have decommissioned them. And so it's really proper use of programming um, that, that is important. And truly, like you said, if we stop sedation on most of our patients right away and we get them right up, then no, you won't need that equipment. Um, for for most patients, again, there's some that are going to come in. Yep. They have multiple sclerosis. They have other mobility issues. Um, they had a surgery on um, on their spine, you know, just before they have maybe cardiac arrest in the OR, and they're now they're in the ICU. Like I said, there's times where you absolutely need that equipment um, if you're going to really maximally mobilize them. You won't be able to without it.
0: And nurses are the masters at titration. They mm-hmm. titrate drips all the time they critically right. think all the time right. and it's just empowering them and giving them the tools to titrate mobility per patient and the bmat really it's it's more for acute care floors yes it has some elements that are not beneficial to the icu but what i saw at st joe's is that they critically thought through that um so the yeah, Well will so i
1: would i wouldn't i don't think i agree with you on that um so so um for the BMAP. Just like any assessment, whether any assessment we do in healthcare, really, in, 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 you, you need to critically think. So that guides you, and it gives you a baseline for guidance. Um, and if you don't look and see if the patients have the quad strength to straight, safely stand yep. before they stand, whether they're in the ICU, a nursing home, frankly, home healthcare, and you ask them to stand and they fail, and now you've caused them fear, you yep. cause yourself fear and then they don't want to move anymore. And then they stop moving and then they spiral and they come back to the hospital or they go to, they fall and they fracture and they die. I mean, this is the real reality of immobility. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. We now. don't know. We don't so have I think it's good have tools to
0: know what to expect, how to navigate right. that. The, my only concern is that with the cognition element of it, it requires patients to cognitively engage and follow commands. So, right. what I've seen with teams is that, um, nurses often feel that that is part of the criteria to mobility is that patients have to be able to yeah. follow commands, do these things, touch my nose, shake my hand, you know, all those things. Whereas in the ICU especially, if we really follow that to a T without critically thinking, mm-hmm. then we're unable to use a tool, one of the main tools to treat delirium. So so, to, so I'm going to BMAT, I'm gonna
1: add something to that. So, so we have in our EPIC documentation system, BMAT contraindicated. So in the critical care setting if someone can't do the vmat you do the old-fashioned thing and you guess right and clearly if they' if they have a ras minus um, three you know there's they're going to be a vmat one because they're, they're' they're not able to follow commands because they're been plowed out on drugs right if, if they if they have um, delirium or dementia and they can't follow commands or they have a language barrier or a, a, you know some other kind of cognitive deficit. That's causing that. Then you're you're guessing, and they might be a mat three or a two or a one, depending. And you're just going with the old fashioned guess. So we, so our nurses, and this is throughout our organization because we have patients on other floors that can't follow commands either. More yeah. in the ICU. Um. So we have a a row where they they write in, and it's contraindicated. Me, we didn't do it, but this is. The mobility level we're guessing they have, and this is the equipment or no equipment they're supposed to be used. So, and that we've, again, been doing that for seven years in our organization. This isn't new. Um, we've been doing it for a very long time. So we integrate that inability to to the met anyway. I love that because we
0: yeah. went on site. Again, the team didn't have any preparation. There's a patient that was had a rash of one or two floridly delirious, mm-hmm. and I made suggestion to dangle them. And the nurses looked at me and Tara and said, no, but they can't follow commands. Oh, wow! And yeah. I think that kind of comes back to the implementation of a BMAT in that setting without the critical thinking and the training, the support that your system has provided. Mm-hmm. And that's where I, I'm glad we're talking about it because it's one of those things to make sure that we do that appropriately. Nurses need tools to know what to anticipate as far as are they safe to, to stand? Are, what, do they need equipment? Yeah. That process something to cue them in and a systematic approach to it helps nurses feel so much safer and confident in approaching it. No one wants to guess all the time. No. Um stick their finger out in the wind, right? To see how do I feel this moment. But um I just that's my main trepidation is that yeah. it could become a barrier if we don't provide the critical thinking tools. But your team, I didn't I would never have thought that they would there was just a night and day difference between those two teams, right? Your application approach to the BMAT nurses felt confident. I could tell that they felt confident in assessing patients as they got going, getting them up and they just were progressive getting a patient in a walking sling on their feet, standing to the chair by themselves on ECMO.
1: That surpasses. Yeah. That's, and there's not, I, I, that's not common practice yet, <laughs> but, 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 you know, it's good to see it happening. And really with any safe patient handling and mobility program, um, you, you can't set your staff up to fail. And yep. so, and they're very complex programs. So, unless you're gonna really have the right onboarding, have the tools right there and available, have the slings right there and available, and 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 people competent to use it and know when to use it by doing some kind of mobility assessment tool. You you know, I, I get calls and emails from colleagues across the country all the time, and they, they're like, you know, no one uses the equipment, why should we buy it? And I said, Well, if you put two lifts on the floor and someone has a patient maybe once every six months that actually needs it, they're never going to get it into their practice. If you don't have the slings available and they're going to need to call and get it, if you have a mobile lift they have to find that isn't plugged in and charged, again, you're setting them up to fail. And so if you're going to do it, you need to do it right. And you need to set up in the right way. And again, anytime you teach a new tool... You've got to remind people that no tool tells you what to do; it guides you in decision making, and and the critical thinking is the key. And that's the other reason to use these tools. Is again, we want our our clinicians, CNAs, you know, PTOT, rehab uh, in general, cardiac rehab, our nurses. We we want them for their brains, not their brawn. And so, and that's, that's where their real skill comes in and their interpersonal relationships, their ability to communicate with their patients. And so if we can use those tools in the appropriate manner, we actually do keep our staff with their patients and not as machines for other people's patients. Um, But it has to be done the right way, like you said, because if it's just, oh, yeah, I don't really want to move this person. So I'm just going to take a lift and stick them in a chair and check the box. You know, so in, in our system, we're 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 adding um, lower level documentation from the lowest level, the highest level of mobility. And when we do the analytics on that dashboard, the denominator will be those lower BMAT levels. So if a patient is a BMAT two, they won't get a pass on the dashboard of performing highest level mobility if they just stay with them. Or if they if they, they, they have to they have to achieve what their maximum mobility is based on that BMAT assessment. So that's oh, around that, that with, with proper measurement. And that that maybe in a year from now we'll have that dashboard to share
0: with you. But that's yeah, that's great. I don't think um I don't think I've seen in the research much collection as far as here's what they're capable of doing, but here's what we did. Yep. It's assumed, but there's not much accountability. So if you have a team that dangles patients across the board um, and they check off that early mobility checkbox, but many of those patients could have been walking. Mm-hmm. Did we really optimize that mobility? Or if they came in walking, we sedated them for five days and now we're getting going again. Um, is that optimal? So I, I love, I love that approach. And you talked about at the very beginning that this is becoming quicker or more efficient. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. What was it like for your
1: team initially? You said it was a lot more laborious initially. Yeah. So I think, I think, well, anytime you do something new, right, it takes longer. Even like if you commute to work at your first day that you're in a new job, it feels longer than after you've been doing it for three weeks. So there's that perception because your brain's working harder to do tasks also. Mm -hmm. But you're fumbling at first. You're a little nervous. Your your team communication isn't sufficient. Um, You know, you might not have all the tools you need. You're having, uh, you know. I know one thing. A lot of ICU nurses have said to me is, "If a PT and OT are coming in to mobilize my patients, and they're new, I'm not. I don't trust them with those lines and drains. And frankly, as a PT myself, I wouldn't trust me with those lines or drains because I've never done critical care therapy, right? And so, so again, it, that training takes time. And becoming competent in something isn't, you know, we we have we teach. So, on something, we sign off a competency. Well, competency takes time. And so, with competency comes efficiency, right? And anytime you do something a lot, you know, you, you buy a, a piece of furniture and you put it together, it takes you a really long time. If you have the company do it, they can do it in five minutes because that's the 30th time that those, those, that group of individuals has made the furniture. And it's really the same kind of thing. And, and with that measurement piece, if you don't document in your health record the how, Much that patient is capable of ambulating or capable of sitting or capable of standing, but maybe not walking yet. Um, You can't really have good measures to drive process improvement. So, for our ambulation measures, we only include patients that are what we call our high BMAT 3 and BMAT 4 because they're physically capable of ambulating. If we looked at our entire patient population, it would be a meaningless number because it would depend on our census and how mobile those people are. And so if you're not, if you're measuring mobility without a denominator of their capability, if you're not driving change, you might think you're driving.
0: I love that. Absolutely. And we're always talking about how this is customizable. This is, you can't optimize care unless you customize it. Right. And so every patient is different, but you need to pe- capture who is that patient. And did we do the best and optimize mobility for that patient? Um, most and, and people, I, most humans walk, but... Um, yeah, most do. Daughter. My daughter will never walk probably, yeah. but I would expect her to be mobilized. And so if someone, yes. just because she didn't walk in the ICU during her ICU stay, which she's been in the ICU, yeah. PT and OT worked with her. They didn't walk her, but they right. optimized and maximized mobility for her and she benefited from it. And that's still an awakened walking approach.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Not everyone's capable of it and, and, and maximizing their capability is going to still massively improve their health outcomes. And... With some technology at a higher level, you can take a child with cerebral palsy and at least have them bear weight. Yep. And, and so we can do stuff now we couldn't do when I was treating patients in the late 80s and 90s. You know, with this technology, we see stroke patients come so much further because of, of their ability to safely be in certain positions that we couldn't physically get them into before. You couldn't have someone do repetitive walking and hold them up in the air. That just wasn't going to happen. So, you know, now that we can have, do that, we see much, much better outcomes. And as we we all say, mobility truly is medicine. It truly is a treatment for mental health and physical health. Um, and so that that and whether you're able to walk or not, mobility is still medicine.
0: And Nancy, what have you guys seen as far as the financial benefits Of making these changes on your team?
1: So, we did a really thorough analysis. We worked with the finance department at St. Joseph Hospital and then with some region finance um, professionals. And, um, you know, there's a lot of data and research out there about cost savings, um, but wanted to see if we could make it really precise and specific to our patients. And in this case, specifically at St. Joseph Hospital. And so, what our group decided um, with a team of clinicians and then a team of finance people um, was to look at the last day of equipment costs in the ICU. And we broke that up by vented patients and not vented patients. And then we looked at, um, at the key um, group, we wanted to focus just on the group we were looking to impact by ICU early mobility. So we excluded patients with a length of stay less than 1.5 days because those tend to be your cardiac surgery, short stay. They're getting up and mobile anyway. They're just vented. So they're, they're in the ICU for a short time. Um, so that's not our patient population. We also excluded patients who passed in the ICU setting feeling like that also may not be a group. We're reducing length of stay. You know, medical circumstances are probably more profound than the mobility impact for that population. And so with the supply costs, we actually have it down to the patient level details. All supplies billed to that patient um, that are not reimbursed, which as we know in healthcare are most supplied. Um, And so what are our real costs? And then also they did a fancy formula for the unit supplies per day based on what you buy for IV tubing and like general supply. So a very, very in-depth and detailed financial analysis went into this. And with St. Joe's, uh, the six months prior to us fully implementing this and the six months after that, we saw a two-day decrease in length of stay. And so what this analysis showed is that that decrease saved us anywhere from, from, 1.2 1.2 million to 1.8 million dollars in supply costs. And the reason there's a variation there is that we looked at two options. So one of them was with a patient was going to be in our hospital for 10 days and four of those days were going to be in the ICU. And we ended up having them in ICU 3 days and 9 days in the hospital that That last day of supply costs in the ICU was all that mattered. That was the real reduction in the cost to deliver that care. However, if when they left the ICU, the length of stay didn't decrease. So Now, again, that four days went to three in the ICU, but the length of stay stayed at 10. We subtracted the last day of supply costs at everywhere else they were in the hospital, whether it was the medical unit, the teleunit. Um, and so we we took the difference between those. So that's the difference between the 1.2 million and 1.8 million dollars. Is that over a year then? That would be over. So no. So if if the de- reduce, uh, the reduction in length of stay was one day, that would have been the savings to the ICU over a year. But it was two days, and so we we basically so in six months we did what we estimated would happen in a year, which was the 1.2 to 1.8 million dollars. So that is for six months. Now, I always say, and Kaylee, you know, I'm like this. I, I'm very cautioned and very tentative with data like this. I definitely want to see it even over a longer period of time. And we will be going back and doing deeper analysis, um, patient level again, to really see those trends. But, you know, cautionary, it's looking pretty amazing. And we also looked at the opportunity in all of our other ICUs based on that. Um, and so we have... Each ICU, and there is some variation in in last day of cost in all of our ICUs, Um, but, you know, this doesn't include also that we might need less PT and OT. We might need less wound care. Um, Our our caregivers aren't necessarily going to go home because it's like, what about staffing? They're like, well, you're not going to necessarily be sending people home that precisely, but they're able to deliver better care because they have the time to do that. We might because need they have need less
0: patients and less time in right. the ventilator less things to worry
1: about. yep exactly so there's that's a that's probably a minimum cost not the total cost saving
0: right but it will pour into better outcomes which pours into better outcomes for our better care goes into better outcomes and yep. less healthcare costs overall for other patients right. as well
1: yeah I mean it, it lower it's a win-win-win it, it, it the whole mobility program crew improve, improve the quality of care for our patients prove their outcome, gives the joy back and work for our ICU staff who had a horrible, horrible time during the pandemic, and provides stewardship. And right now, um, 66% of the hospitals, I believe, I'm, I may, may be a little off here, in the United States ended in the red in 2022. So um, this is a huge issue with our staffing and things like that, contract work still from the pandemic left over, cost of living like it's gone up everywhere, obviously, is another impact. So, uh, so this is also a, a time it's highly needed <laughs> to have safe funds, and it's so exciting. I mean, this is within the first within the first six months, which I think is
0: um, a time of growing pains when you're still mm-hmm. working out the kinks, figuring out your process, yep. standardizing the practices, the education, the dynamics. So it's not a completely flawless, awake and walking approach no. yet. But I mean, just those initial changes, yep. those first steps of progress immediately resulted in healthcare savings. There's no excuse not to, right? This is an obvious return on investment. Yeah. How how much do you estimate that the hospital invested into making these changes?
1: So if we include the the grant project, which was um, funded by our quality department, so not directly the hospital, it's a system level grant that was funding that work. But let's just even pretend that that was all paid for by by the that particular hospital in that particular unit. And then if you added in all the training time and everything like that, less than $100,000. So <laughs> yeah.
0: it's been hundred oh, less than $100,000 to save, right. n- getting close to $2 million, I mean $1.8 mm-hmm. million. And I, I'm going to just assume or, or feel secure in uh, estimating that that will continue to improve.
1: No, 1.2 million. Um, so just because of the the six month differential, but yeah, but still, I mean, uh, yeah, 1, that's a pretty good yeah, on the timing, right. right? Right, exactly. So, but very much a great, great return on investment for anybody. Yeah.
0: And then again, that doesn't take into consideration the possible but likely um, improvement in retention staffing dynamics morale um, Mm -hmm. all of this will have a long-term impact on your team not just in the the six months but for years to come yes and we actually
1: are meeting with someone next week on our culture of safety survey results and we're going to look at the icu there and see if we've noted any changes in that so excellent more to come keep me posted thank you so much nancy you're welcome